This morning, we invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're in a series called uh, This Process of Living Free. We have been through the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 11, being set free through Jesus Christ. Now, how to live free, how to apply that, Romans 12 through 16. A lot of very practical, very relevant topics, not that the previous chapters weren't, but there is certainly a, uh, a sense that we can see the practicality in a very easy and real way. There's an outline that is available for you. It is the roadmap to allow you to know exactly where we are at any given point in the service, and I think you would find some very helpful things on the backside, extra bits of information that uh, we don't have always enough time on a Sunday morning like this. This morning, the topic for us is living in peace with problem people. How many of you have problem people in your lives? Okay, those who didn't raise your hands, are they sitting next to you? Um, All right. So what we'd like to understand is that a lot of us have problem people in our lives. And here's a first reality check for us. Our lack of peace. We will struggle to live peaceful lives because of the evil deeds of others. And so I know that that's not a newsflash, that's not new information. Those of us who have lived longer than 10 years, we know that there are problem people who do evil things. And sometimes they're unfair, unjust, and we simply don't like it. Jesus promised that. He said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. We want to overcome the world. We want to overcome problem people. And there can be any variety of those types of people. On a very serious side, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of an article that uh, I have referenced in the past, and it has to do with um, being married to the wrong person. I won't ask for a show of hands about that. But there is a danger of getting married to the wrong person. It is much worse than living a single life all of your life. And if you're single and you haven't found that perfect person, you say to yourself, boy, the grace of God might have spared me something very, very painful. There's an article that I have referenced, but I haven't referenced it in, uh, in a number of years now. And uh, I have referred it probably more than any other article uh, to couples who are struggling with problem people. And in this particular case... It's a wife who has a problem husband. And the title of the article that some of you may remember is The Silent Killer of Christian Marriages. The Silent Killer of Christian Marriages. This is written to couples in churches like ours where they will come to a service like this and everybody around them will look at them and think they are fantastic. What a wonderful couple. They have so many things going for them. There's such a vitality to the relationship. And often the husband can be the life of the party and the one that everybody is attracted to and thinks, wow, what a spectacular guy he is. Well, this woman who is a psychologist wrote this article, The Silent Killer of Christian Marriages for Couples Like That. And she begins the paragraph this way. The Traits of an Abusive Husband. The key motivational factor that defines an emotionally abusive person is a deep-seated need to be in control. Because of the abuser's insecurities, feelings of inadequacy, and distorted beliefs about women and marriage, 
He feels he must control his wife or lose her. The abuser will manipulate, manipulate and use heavy-handed tactics to keep his wife off balance. For example, he'll use intimidation, illicit fear, guilt, pity, or anger, make a person feel vulnerable, in danger, unprotected, or helpless, put-downs, criticisms, or verbal abuse, cause shame or humiliation, control the schedule, keep another ignorant regarding herself, the world, finances, or others, keep a person in crisis and occupied and thus off balance, have a certain sense of conspiracy and turning others away from aiding the person, create situations in which there is no way to win, use lying or gossip, threat, self-harm or suicide, possessiveness and jealousy. And the result is that the wife believes that she carries the responsibility for a bad marriage and that if only she could change, her marriage would improve. No matter what she does differently, however, the marriage never gets better. And so she feels like it's all on her. And he's a master manipulator to make her think it's all on her. Those are problem people to the nth degree because they hide under the radar. They look good on the outside, but there's something so destructive going on on the inside. That's just one example. I think as I read through the Bible and read about the great people that God records in scriptures, I never thought about this. Eve had her Adam and Adam had her Eve. Sarah had her Abraham. Sarah had her Hagar. Abraham had his Hagar, and Hagar had her Abraham. Isaac had his Ishmael. Jacob had his Esau. Joseph had his brothers. The Apostle Paul had his John Mark that he really lambasted for being a quitter. Noah had his world. Nehemiah had a Sanballat and Tobiah that were constantly discouraging and attacking the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem around 400 B.C. Jesus had his Peter. Jesus had his Judas. And Jesus, Jesus has us. And so there are problem people throughout the history of time. And so that's not a new reality, but we want to see how we can address it. The Apostle Paul is writing in Romans chapter 12. And I want to read from Romans 12 in the passage of today. And Paul has just concluded a passage that we looked at last week. And last week it was all about this kind of love relationship that we should have. He talks about some of the qualities back in verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And we sort of broke that down. And then he said this in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then he says to that, in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, and feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's break that down. See what God is teaching us about how to live at peace with problem 
people. Now remember, Paul's writing to Rome. Rome in the first century. If you just know a little bit about history, and I, it's about as much as I know about history, but think back to Rome, the Colosseum, Christians being mauled to death by wild animals, being used as torches in the backyard of the, of the king. Christians are being totally mutilated and abused and murdered in torturous ways. And Paul writes to the Christians in the city of Rome where some of them are constantly hearing about the persecution and torture and destruction of fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He's writing to those Christians and they're hearing daily reports of those who are being martyred for their faith. And he writes to them, never pay back evil for evil. That's a very different world than the world that we live in today. And so if he's writing to them in a very heavy-handed persecution country where there are no Bill of Rights, there are no lawyers to stand in line to protect the innocent, they have no rights whatsoever. Claiming to follow Jesus Christ could be a proclamation of death. And that's the people he's writing to. So what does he say to us today that I think is relevant for us? That our solution to find peace is that we are victims of evil deeds and we need to follow the following steps. Here's kind of how I break down the passage. You can see it on the outline. The first thing is this. We need to avoid any sinful response by stopping to consider what is good and honorable. That is a paraphrase of that verse that you see on the screen or in your scriptures in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Breaking that down even further, these two words, respect and right, are intriguing words. The word respect means to stop and take thought of someone, to provide for them. And the word right is to think about that which is good, that which is fair, that which is honorable. So the Apostle Paul uses in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, but respect. Stop. Think about it. Think what you should do to provide for them, and in particular, provide for them what is right. That is, which is fair, which is honorable, what is good in the sight of all men. So there is this, this pause that goes on when I am being struck by the evil of someone else that is required. There's a story that goes back way back, and some of you remember this, and I hadn't thought about it in a long time, but I thought about it this week, and I'll share it. Uh, way back when I was half the age I am today, twice as smart as I am today back then, believe it or not. I don't know near as much as I used to know when I was 30. But when you're back in your 30 and you're really smart and you know everything, one of the dumb things that I did was I planted blackberry bushes in our backyard in, in Corona. Don't plant blackberry bushes in your backyard in Corona. The thorns and the thistles and the stringers and all this, it's just not worth, just go to the, go to this little stand and buy yourself some blackberries. Believe me, I just save you a lot of trouble on that. But I planted the blackberry bushes and I thought it was a great idea until you have to go out there and prune them and I got all these thorns on them. It's just such a pain. So in the middle of summer, it's hot. I'm out there with a pitchfork and I'm digging to get those things out of the ground. It's worse than getting weeds out of the ground because they send these runners and they're just everywhere. It's just such an awful thing. It was hot. I was sweating. And we have this, this wooden fence that separates our yard from our neighbor's yard. And it's kind of a rickety fence that needed to be fixed, but, uh, you know, neither he nor I wanted to spend the money or the time to do it. 
that neighbor uh, of ours was a pastor of another local church in the city of Corona where I was also a pastor. So we all know we're both very mature and godly men who, who are sharing, <laughs> sharing that little fence. Well, this pastor, a friend of ours that lived next door to us, had this big boxer dog. I mean, a giant boxer dog. You know, the boxer dogs are just big. They kind of look a little scary, actually. And so I'm in the backyard, and I'm digging, and the boxer dog starts barking. And I'm getting kind of annoyed by the barking as I continue to dig. And he, the neighbor wasn't home, and I was the only one home in our backyard. And, and he started barking, started barking. That, that was sort of frustrating, but I kept on digging. And then the boxer dog started jumping on the fence. He should he put his front paws on it and push on it and jump back and front paws. And, uh, and as I was digging, I was in the fence is going like this. And I was so annoyed with that dog. And then he took a big running jump. And with four paws, all four paws jumped on that rickety fence. And boom, the fence comes collapsing down into our yard. And he's standing on the top of the fence. And he and I are about as from where Ken and I are in this front row right here. And I've got this pitchfork in my hand. And he's staring me down, and I'm staring him down. And I said, go ahead, make my day. I was ready to, I was ready to skewer him. I was so angry with this dog. He destroyed my fence. And I don't know who was more shocked he was or I was that uh, we were standing there. And he scampered off like a coward he is. And so... But at that point, I want to do evil for evil, but because I'm such a mature guy, and because I knew Romans 12:17 by heart, <laughs> no, not true, but what Romans 12:17 says, when that moment comes, respect what is right. Stop, think, what should I do to provide that is good, fair, and honorable? And the whole idea of respect what is right in the sight of all men, the whole idea that respect what is right in the sight of all men is so that today, right now, you and I were sitting here relatively calm. No one's really bothering you. I may be bothering you right now. I don't know a little bit. But hopefully nobody's bothering you right now. Nobody's dinging your car. No one's cutting you off in the 55 freeway. Your boss isn't anywhere around, hopefully. So no one's bugging you. So right now, when things are kind of reasonably calm and peaceful, you're sitting in a nice cushy chair. I have to stand up here. You're sitting comfortably out there. As you sit there, you think to yourself, respect what is right in the sight of all men so that you prepare yourself for when the fence falls towards you. Because when that fence falls down and the enemy is in your face, there's going to be an emotional... We all know this. There's going to be emotional reaction... And that emotional reaction may cause us to say or do something we'll regret for the rest of our lives. What the Apostle Paul is teaching us is that now, in the calmness of this room, respect what is right. Think ahead. Take thought for what is good, right, and honorable for any emotional evil that comes against you. So you will do what glorifies God. Don't Pay back evil for evil. I love this uh, quote. Father James Broderick writ, wrote in his book called Progress of the Jesuits on Pope Paul IV about that pope. He says, He never forgot such incidents, which was one of his fundamental weaknesses, things done against him. He might bury the hatchet for a time, but he gave the impression of always carefully marking the spot. 
And that is the mindset that does not respect what is right. That is the mindset that is looking for the next opportunity to seize somebody by the throat. We also notice in Proverbs 24, 29, Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Don't pay back evil for evil. I will render to the man according to his work. I will do that, God would say to us. The second thing that we notice from, comes from the passage is in verse 18. Control your actions by pursuing peace even if they do not cooperate. And the problem with evil people doing evil deeds is that people who are evil doing evil deeds, they don't care about what's right. They don't care about what's honorable. They don't care about respecting what is right in the sight of all men. They just do evil. And they may not have any kind of filter. And they just let it come out, verbally and otherwise. So that's why Paul writes in verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So Paul is realistic. He knows it's a two-way street to have fights. It's a two-way street to have peace. And so he recognizes that it is not always easy to have peace. But he says, I don't want it to be your fault because there's no peace. Therefore, you need to do certain things to maintain the peace. Even if they don't respond, even if the spouse, the neighbor, the boss, the employee, the guy in the sports field, the golfer, wherever you're at, even if they don't respond, as far as you're concerned, do these things that reflects peace. So I look at the rest of the passage, pursuing peace includes doing this. For example, in verse 19, never take your own revenge. Do not use the occasion of your pain to seek revenge. Don't go after the pound of flesh. Remember sitting there with a wife who is getting the divorce and she's with her attorney. And the attorney says, as the three of us are sitting there in the courtroom, uh, outside the courtroom, I should say, in the hallway. And the lawyer says to the wife who's getting the divorce, we're going to go for the jugular. Well, I don't know that that lawyer has any understanding of biblical concepts of don't seek revenge. But going for the jugular is not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this pursuing peace. You don't use the occasion of the pain to seek revenge. Sir Walter Scott said, Revenge is the sweetest morsel to the mouth that was ever cooked in hell. And that's really true. Revenge is a loser's game. You constantly beat each other down. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rose a spirit than he who captures a city. The capacity for me to resist revenge is greater than the power of one who captures a city. And so I think that we all know this. I think that we're all pretty reasonable people in this room for the most part. And so I think that it should be a standing rule that you never seek revenge. But one of the great examples of that took place, and I noted this many years ago. I bring it up again in light of all these school shootings that are going on. Seattle Pacific University this last week, I mean, it's just so tragic, all the terrible things that are taking. But the model for a lot of us was the school shooting that occurred way back in 2006, October the 2nd. Remember the Amish little girls? Ten little girls shot by this evil man who did this evil deed. But more shocking in some ways than the terrible slaughter of these little girls was the amazing, the amazing heart of these Amish people 
in response. Here's an interview with one of the Amish parents. They said, it has not always been easy. There have been times that they've even struggled with their faith. You have to have a will to forgive, one mother says. You have to want to forgive, and that's the first step. A father says that they were released. They released Roberts, this murderer. They released, when they released Roberts, they released themselves from anger and from bitterness, but not from pain. The wife of this Amish father, his wife says quietly, just because you've forgiven doesn't mean you've forgotten and that it doesn't hurt. Never, never say to a victim of evil, forgive and forget. You have just put on them an impossible task. Who can forget the evil of a daughter killed by a murderer? You don't forget that. You don't want to forget that. You want to always remember that precious life. And so never say forgive and forget. It's a terrible phrase. One book that was written about it by Donald Craybill, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy, he wrote this about that Amish destruction. Psychologists who study forgiveness find that, generally speaking, people who forgive lead happier and healthier lives than those who don't. The Amish people we interviewed agreed, citing their own experience of forgiving others. Some said they were controlled by their offender. They were controlled by their offender until they were able to forgive. Others said the acids of hate destroy the unforgiving person until the hate is released. The Apostle Paul says, never seek your own revenge. Rather, you move towards the person in terms of a forgiving and gracious spirit. And that just sounds so painful to think about doing. But I'll give you an example as we go through this. That is the challenge for us. 1 Peter 1, 20, 2, 21, 23 says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. And I underline this key phrase, leaving for you an example. Leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. What is that example that Jesus leaves for us? This is a reminder. It's not a newsflash. The example that Christ left for us, that while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. The example, when reviled, did not revile in return. Suffered, gave no threats. He just entrusted into Almighty God who justifies and judges righteously. That's our example. And again, we're sitting in a very peaceful room. You're all sitting on very cushy little seats, not on those hard pews that some churches make you sit on. And as we sit here comfortably in this nicely air-conditioned room, as we sit here peacefully, Would you respect what is right in all men by remembering? I'm not going to seek revenge when that moment comes. And it may come this afternoon. It may come tomorrow morning. It may come in a week from now. But for us to be the believers that if possible, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to seek peace. Even if the other party doesn't cooperate with that. But as far as it depends on me, 
The peace plan is for me to not seek revenge, to not revile back when reviled, to suffer in a way that I don't return the evil back to the person. Pursuing peace also is this. I trust in and wait for God to bring full justice in His time. That's why he says in verse 19, But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is a hard thing because it's not like that God instantly brings the lightning bolt on the person that has done the evil deed. We would sometimes wish for that. We would wish that there would be a big hole that would open up and they would be swallowed down. God has been known to do things like that. God has even been known to bring a flood that wipes out everybody. But in the day in which you and I live, and this is, again, this is just such a familiar territory that we all know until the emotions sort of rise up, that we need to just sit back and say, God, you are the one who's in charge. This is a terrible situation. I have been wronged. I have been hurt. I have been injured. But God, you're the one. You've told me. You promised it. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay So, God, I'm waiting for the payment to come. But I'm not going to take charge because that's your job. I'm not going to get in your way to do your job because you do it better than me. Now, one of the great examples of how God does bring this to pass, I've given to you on the backside of the Digging Deeper. And uh, this is a great little study that you will enjoy that is a very wonderful companion to Romans 12. Let me just just show you this because you sometimes miss this. You leave it in the little book rack there in front of you. You don't walk out with it. But King David was wrestling with King Saul. David has not really been fully uh, put into office yet. But Saul is just all over David's life. And David is just this innocent and sweet and faithful and godly young man that is uh, uh, yet to be king, although God has chosen him. But Saul hates David. He hates him so much that he's trying to kill David. And if you read in 1 Samuel 18, you know, that's right in the middle there. I just listed some of the things that David was living with. In verse 8, Saul had anger, resentment, jealousy, and strife. In verse 9, there was suspicion, lack of trust. In verses 10 and 11, physical and emotional assaults by Saul towards David. In verse 12, working in an atmosphere of fear and intimidation. In verses 13 through 17, manipulation, deceit, and false promises by Saul. I mean, that is a current relevant situation for some of us. You read those qualities and say, man, that's my marriage, that's my job, that's my boss, that's my neighborhood, that's the HOA committee that is driving me nuts my homeowners association, whatever it may be. Those are the things that David was dealing with. And it's an amazing thing that vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says God. Well, if you read in 1 Samuel chapter 24, I outline and show you in this digging deeper, I've done all the heavy lifting for you. And so all you need to do is read through that and answer the questions. If you want to, sh- if you want to know that does God keep His word about such things as this, that are these evil, awful, unfair sufferings that I go through. God does that because David responds according to Romans 12. David's never heard of the book of Romans. It has not been written when he was alive, way back in 1000 B.C. It wouldn't be written for another 1,000 years from David's day. But David's response to King Saul is a beautiful illustration of the practical application of verses 12 Chapters 12, 17 through 21 of uh, this book of Romans. So go through that and see how God uses David's response that is classically 
illustrating Romans chapter 12. So I encourage you to spend time on that. If you've got problem people all around you right now, man, go to that text. Read 1 Samuel 24. Read Romans chapter 12. I'll highlight the verse where it shows the application. And you will see that God means what He says. He did it then a thousand years ago, or longer than that from us, but a thousand years before Jesus came and Paul wrote that. But vengeance is mine, I will repay. God says, let me prove it to you. Trust me. And then we read this. In pursuing peace, I don't seek revenge. I let God take care of the vengeance thing. It's not my thing. I can't do it. I make a terrible mess of it. But then he says, not just don't do those things. Just don't do revenge and vengeance. But here's what you do do. Here's the positive side. You'll see how David did this in that passage, as a matter of fact. Pursuing peace includes in love, giving what the other person needs, which may bring him or her to repentance. That's an interpretation of this verse. Here's the verse in verse 20. It's a little bit confusing when you read it. But Paul quotes from the Old Testament, and he quotes this. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now here's kind of the irony of the thing. I don't want to seek vengeance, but by loving him, I actually get him some little payback of vengeance, right? Not exactly. He says, I want you to take this enemy who is hungry and feed him. I want you to take this enemy who is thirsty and give him drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does he mean by that? That's kind of a weird thing. In ancient Egypt, one of the signs that an Egyptian has truly been shamed into repentance is to put hot coals in a pan and to walk around with the hot coals on his head like this. Because what he is saying is that I am in shame, I am guilt, I am burning up inside over the shame that I have done this terrible thing. And by walking around with burning coals on his head in this uh, pan, he is indicating that I am repentant, I am sorry, I am shamed into not doing it again. So Paul is saying, I want you to love this guy, give him food, give him water, so that he can come and be like those Egyptians walking around with a sense of shame and guilt and repentant over his wrong deeds. I want you to love them into changing. And we would say to Paul, oh man, I don't know if I can do that. That's so hard for me. First Peter chapter 4 says this, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. The world, you know the lawyer that sits next to this woman who's getting divorced? He says, I'm going to go for the jugular. That's the way the world operates. Let's go for the jugular. Let's get our pound of flesh. Let's get back at them. Let's make them pay a heavy price. Well, the world is surprised when we don't go around like they do. They malign us for that. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Because God will take care of that. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I'm going to entrust myself to Almighty God in this problem, in this situation. I don't know the outcome. I don't know the right thing to do. All I know is that I want to do what is right. And the Apostle Paul says to do what is right is if he is thirsty, give him drink. If he is hungry, give him food. And man, I'm going to leave the results to God. Because Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness leads people to repentance. Now, how do we do that? It's interesting, this last week, some of us on our staff found this video, or maybe some time ago. But Chick-fil-A has a training video. 
where they train those serving their fast food items to recognize the people sitting in this restaurant are people with needs. And you need to look beyond the external to the internal to understand what those needs are. So when the Apostle Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him drink. He's not talking about Chick-fil-A. But what he is talking about is that there is a need. Hungry, I recognize that need, I give you food. Thirsty, I recognize that need, I give you drink. We need to see people for the deeper needs that are not being met and care for them. But I want you to see the video to help reinforce See the deeper needs that are not being met that I can provide love to. Take a look at this video, Chick-fil-A. so well done, isn't it? That's Chick-fil-A training. When you go to Chick-fil-A, they've been trained to see you as not just a customer and you slap some fast food on the tray and send them on their way. But everybody's got a story and a backstory. When someone does an evil deed, my guess is for most people, unless they're completely deranged, there's a backstory there. 
And the more I can understand it, the more I can see the need there, the more God can use me to begin to love them in a way that maybe not the next day, maybe not the next week, but in time, there's a softening and a response. One of the stories that comes from one of you last Sunday night, and I've asked their permission to use this with their names. Our life group met last Sunday night, and we're talking about some of the things about love and and the challenge of loving people and the challenge of abhorring what is evil but doing what is right. And some people are so much easier to love. One of the couples in our church uh, and in our life group are Blaine and Lori Molesbury. Blaine was married to his first wife before Lori, of course, and tells this story. I asked him to send it to me. In 1963, at age 30, Blaine made a personal commitment to follow Jesus Christ and invited God to take over. It was a dramatic change, he said, in his life. But God started a major refining process. I was to learn what his plans for love, hate, forgiveness, patience, and much more. It was going to be tough. He had a lot of work to do in cleaning me up. About a year into my life, I moved the family into a new home in Palos Verdes. I soon discovered that my first wife was committing adultery with a next-door neighbor. I was furious with both of them, but mostly the neighbor. I'm embarrassed to say it now, but I wanted to kill the guy. I couldn't sleep and wandering around the neighborhood that night planning revenge. After quite a while, I went back inside and picked up my grandmother's Bible I had recently received, and she had died and left it for me. As I thumbed through it, I found where she had made little shaky lines under some verses. And the verses that my eyes fell on were these in Romans 12, 17, and 19. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto the wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It was obvious that God was speaking through Grandma, and I was able to get myself together and go to bed. The Bible could lead us through difficult times in our life, and I soon moved the family as far away as I could into Agora Hills. Well, my first wife and four children, we all moved to Agora Hills then in 65, and Doris then, his wife, became involved in middle school activities, and she and the school principal became involved. On August the 28th in 1968, she left the family with that principal, and our children's ages were 6 to 16. I was a rather new Christian and furious with God. In my new faith, family had become so important to me. That night I couldn't sleep and I found myself at 2 a.m. sitting on a curb under a street light. And as I prayed, an inner voice was saying clearly, Peace I leave with you. Not my peace, the world gives, but the peace of me. Let not your heart be troubled or afraid. I had no idea where that came from, but it allowed me to go to bed and sleep. And later I found the verse in John 14. I don't think I'd ever read it before. Soon God challenged me to the love principle. If your enemy is thirsty, give him drink. If he is hungry, give him food. That's my addition. God challenged me to the love principle. I said, there is no way I can do that. Look what he has done. I hate him. But God said to him, Blaine, just pray for him. Okay, God, but my prayers won't mean much. And I was so surprised that after the few months, my prayers were warm 
and I was beginning to even like the guy. In my prayers, I asked God to bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus. One day, my ex-wife called and said, Guess what? Ken just accepted the Lord. Prayer works. God's Word is true. Not always as fast as we want it. Not always the way we want it. But when you and I are found faithful to obedience of the Word of God, God proves Himself time and time again. I thank Blaine and Lori for opening a little bit of their lives to see how God has worked through them and He continues to work through them as they've been a blessing to us in terms of marriages. And I just conclude this last phrase. It's really kind of an all-encompassing verse of verse 21. Be encouraged that your good response will overcome evil actions. Do not become over, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Blaine's story and countless others of you could tell stories of the good that you did that overcomes the evil that was done to you. And God wants to honor us and honor His name as we're obedient to Him. Let me conclude with a word of prayer. And the prayer is this. We are going to be given to you as you leave this morning this prayer booklet, 30 Days of Prayer. You know, one of the things that we in America struggle with is the Muslim population. You know, the stuff that was breaking this last week, the Bergdahl family, Bo Bergdahl, if you've been reading the news, his mother and dad, I read a letter from the pastor of his mother and dad's church. That mom and dad, that dad that stood there with a crazy beard and the Muslim uh, references in that White House scene, if you played that out. Well, his pastor has written a letter in his defense that Bo's parents, Bob and his wife, are both followers and believers in Jesus Christ. Was it evident? No. Is it real? Apparently so. When brothers and sisters like that are going through very terrible times, it's pretty easy to judge, pretty hard to love. And when we go through terrible times with the Islam population, such as they are, whether the Taliban or other places around the world, sometimes we forget that it's God's job to judge. It's our job to love. And so you have an opportunity as Blaine prayed for the man who took his wife in adultery. We have an opportunity to pray for those who are doing terrible things around the world and those who need Jesus Christ. They need Jesus every bit as the people in Irvine who are without Christ need Christ. And so pick up this prayer booklet. And one of the pray pages, you turn to page 19, is a nominally Muslim, nominally Muslim in Albania. Albania is a country we've been in. Numbers of us were there last summer. And Ron Rogowski, our worship pastor, is in Albania right now. He is leading them in worship. I got a text from Ron. Ron's on sabbatical. He's normally up here, a worship leader. And this is the text that Ron just sent me this morning from Albania. Hi, Dave. Great with Bertie, Pastor Bertie, the pastor of the church that is there. Lots of coaching with keyboard, guitar singers, limited skill, but model servants of the Lord. Tell the congregation, I love and miss them. Bless you. That's our Ron Rogalski over there right now. And he's over there leading them. And we're going to send a bunch of high school students over there in a couple of weeks who are going to minister to them as well. They are a Muslim country. They are really an atheistic people. But they are building as minarets that are trying to capture their hearts for Islam. And on this booklet, you can read on page 19 
about Albania and the opportunity. And we are going to try to reach through a partnership with that church, of Pastor Bertie's church, the people of Albania. And so as a practical way, in a sort of a grandiose way, think about those that are the Muslim, who are Muslims of the Islam uh, religion. They need Jesus Christ. As you think about the boss, that neighbor, that friend, that spouse, that child, who also this passage would apply to, think about the greater population that Jesus died for around this world. So pick those up as you go out. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your grace to us. I pray that we would be people who follow your will, who do your work, who are obedient to the truth. And God, we will reach those points with certain classes of people and certain groups of people and certain friendships and acquaintances, God, that just drive us crazy because there is evil and it is unfair. But I pray, God, that you would find us faithful to biblical truth and that, God, you would honor yourself through that obedience and that we would faithfully obey all that you've called us to do and to say, and that we would live at peace with problem people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.